3: Tuesday morning the 12th of April Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. It's day two of the AGSI three day annual conference in Killarney The Minister for Justice, Helen McEntee addressed sergeants and inspectors yesterday promising to introduce legislation to give on Garda Shia Khan the powers necessary to investigate serious crimes so that the European Court of Justice ruling on data retention in the case against Graeme Dwyer for the murder of Elaine O'Hara will not result in Garda carrying out investigations with their hands tied behind their back. The Association of Garda Sergeants and Inspectors represents 2,500 members and there are many issues that members are raising this year with online training for dealing with domestic violence, rosters and pay dominating the conference so far. Ronan Claher is the Deputy General Secretary secretary of the association of guard sergeants and inspectors the agsi and on the line and a uh, very good morning to you ron and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the program uh, this morning uh, i'm sure we'll discuss many of uh, those issues that your members have uh, in a moment or two but perhaps we can begin with what I think members will be discussing in Killarney uh, to a large degree today because it, it's a good day for the force isn't it with a press conference due to be held at about 10 o'clock this morning which will see Irish, American and British law enforcement agencies come together in Dublin to announce actions uh, against uh, the Kinehans uh, Christy Senior and Daniel and Christopher Junior along with four of uh, their associates have been sanctioned uh, by the US department of the treasury as being at the apex of the criminal network and i, I think uh, after this six-year investigation it puts the force in a very positive light as a, a professional police force on an international scale
4: hey, good morning michael thank you for having me on the show this morning um leave their major press conference in Dublin this morning, however, um, on operational matters such as, such as such, our association would not comment, and I'm sure the Commissioner would be
3: in press Oh, I understand there. that, and I, I'm not asking you to comment on the specifics of it, and we'll get the details. There's still a lot of details to come, as I understand it, but I, I think it does show the force in a, a good light, and highlights, uh, to a large degree, uh, the international aspect of working as a police officer in this country nowadays.
4: Absolutely. Um, Policing is international now. Um, Criminals move across several jurisdictions. And uh, yes, police forces are working together all the time, particularly across Europe and the UK. And yes, it is great that uh, positive results are coming out of such work.
3: Okay, well, very good. I'm sure, as I say, there'll be a lot of talk amongst members uh, this morning, undoubtedly some of them uh, involved uh, with uh, those investigations uh, for that matter. Uh, Your conference is underway. There's a a lot of issues. Uh, I think people in the country, generally speaking, have uh, a lot of uh, concerns particularly uh, to do with inflation and uh, the soaring costs of living and pay is one of uh, the issues uh, that is being debated uh, by your members. Uh, You're due a 1% increase, uh, I think, in October, isn't it?
4: Yes, that's correct. The guards, no more than any other person in this country, are affected by uh, the the spike in the cost of living in, in, over the last number of months, particularly uh, everyday items such as fuel, bread. Uh, they've all gone up and they're expected to rise further. Uh, and we're, part, uh, we're due 1% um, in October as part of the building momentum pay deal. However, last Thursday, the General Secretary of the AGSI, Anthony Cunningham, uh, invoked the review clause in, in relation to that. Um, and so that will be coming back before uh, the Minister uh, for further negotiations in the near future, hopefully.
3: Well, what type of claims would your members hope uh, will be? Well, we're not
4: going to put a specific number on it, Michael, but mm. uh, we, we definitely want to enter into discussions you know inflation is a very serious issue um, uh, at the moment now and no no more than any other person in the country the the guards have to live as well.
3: Okay as things stand we could be looking at inflation uh, levelling out over the course of the year at around six percent it could be higher than that uh, because there's so much uncertainty it's uh, impossible to forecast uh, how all of this is going to go but would you be hoping for claims in line with the rate of inflation?
4: Well, I, I, I'm, not going, I'm not going to put a number on it, but also else I would say is that we're, we, 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 we're open to discussions and we, we'll see how they go.
3: OK. Um, you uh, have uh, been talking as well, as I mentioned earlier on, indeed, I'm sure people saw a lot of coverage of it yesterday about online training, uh, in particular to do with uh, domestic violence, and there's a, a lot of concern that this isn't face-to-face training.
4: Absolutely yes, and the Minister McIntyre was at our conference yesterday and, and, and addressed this issue directly. Um yes, we we're very concerned, um, particularly over the, the COVID period, uh training had moved on to online. It's called the LMS, that's the Guard, the system, the guards work. And we did not think this was suitable in re- particularly in relation to domestic violence. In re- Training in relation to domestic violence means to be interactive training, uh, inter-agency training and it, it is just not a, an online experience and that is just not suitable. And Gardaí need the best training possible, uh, particularly to deal with crucial uh, issues such as domestic violence.
3: And when you talk about interagency training, uh, you mean that uh, groups like Women's Aid or the Rape Crisis Centre should be able to meet with your members and to offer advice?
4: Exactly, yes, Uh, uh, as part of the training and the different courses and the different agencies that everyone involved in in domestic violence incidents and how victims, uh, you know, uh, victim engagement and uh, so the Gardaí would have everyone's aspect uh, on on the whole issue, you know.
3: Mm. I'm sure your members uh, work very hard and do their best uh, but it it must be very frustrating uh, when you see that 999 calls are cancelled uh, and that people ended up suffering from domestic violence because those calls were cancelled or after those calls were cancelled, if you prefer. Uh,
4: yes, well, uh, there is a review on a at the moment in relation to that and there was an interim uh, report issued and we'll wait for the full report before we comment any further in relation to that.
3: Okay, and what did you make of uh, the Minister's comments on uh, data retention and uh, how she may legislate uh, on foot of uh, that European Court of Justice ruling?
4: Yes, um, the, they need all the tools that they can, the best possible tools that they're disposable to investigate crime, and we welcome any new legislation uh, in relation to the retention.
3: Okay, you're investigating crimes differently, though, since that case was lodged. Are you? Uh, yes,
4: um, there, there there were certain restrictions put on it. Um, we'll see how it goes. The minister the minister has been fully. Involved and she under, has undertaken to try and address the issue as best as possible. Uh, obviously, uh, you know, uh, modern society, uh, data retention plays a big part in the gathering of, of evidence in the investigation process, and, and, and we had hoped that the issue could be addressed as soon as
3: possible. Okay, tell me a little bit about uh, the problems that your members have with rostering, uh, because uh, the way people are rostered, change, did it not, uh, because of COVID and restrictions that were being put in place?
4: Yes, uh, rosters um, there was a 12-hour roster brought in overnight which uh, the, the association and all members of Angadashina kind co- of co- cooperated with um, an emergency situation. This has been going on for two years. We have been in roster negotiations now over the last two years uh, for, for, for new rosters for the force and um, these negotiations, unfortunately, the AGSI uh, had to withdraw from these negotiations on the 16th of March. And um, as uh, the, the terms were not in the best interest of the sergeants and inspectors, uh, there has been an emergency motion brought forward before the conference, which will be heard this morning at half 9.30 uh, from the Galway branch. And following the same, the General Secretary, Anthony Cunningham, will be delivering a, a detailed presentation to all the delegates at conference, Um, In in relation to rosters and then from that presentation um, we'll be able to get a good sense of um, how the members feel and how we think we should approach uh, the rosters issue by lunchtime
3: today. All right, and would it be true to say that this is the biggest issue of contention uh, as things stand for sergeants and inspectors and could actually result in industrial action?
4: um it is a very very big issue for um all members of the force uh, gardies and sergeants and inspectors um it, you know members need predictability in in, in their work and um, they need to know how when they're working um, you know and they also need a, gr- a good work life balance as well so yes it is it's is probably the biggest issue for most members of our association at the moment
3: okay we were all discussed it uh, i think think uh, through uh, COVID and uh, the lockdowns how members of Gardaí Garda were treated by some members of the public and reports of people spitting at Garda and that type of uh, thing uh, but of course uh, you quite often come under attack from members of the public in many different ways physical violence and that sort of uh, thing uh, you're getting a little bit closer to having body worn cameras
4: Yes, the Minister has announced the pilot project will, will be up and running in the coming months uh, though the association welcomes this this is a uh, a serious development for uh, the for the Shukana and the public at general we've been advocating for the introduction of body worn cameras for a long number of years now you know there there will be a lot of benefits uh, to this there will be benefits to the members of the force in relation to their safety uh, protection against uh, malicious allegations uh, there'll also be benefits for members of the public as well, and the big benefits in in court evidence as well. So this is a very welcome development, um, and the Minister has confirmed that that pilot project will will, will be coming up and running in the next coming
3: months. Okay. Are are you surprised by the objections uh, to body-worn cameras uh, and drones uh, and other types of uh, filming of uh, people uh, based on, on their civil rights?
4: Um, Well, I'm aware that there have been objections. However, the Minister confirmed yesterday as well to conference. uh, You know, there will be very strict policies put in place, um, you know, uh, to manage this footage and data protection. And I I personally would not have no concerns or association in relation to that.
3: In, In relation to people's civil rights being breached?
4: Well, no in relation to the data or pension, sorry. Um people's mm-hmm. civil rights whether well, be a training and guarding will be uh, you know, updated and um, you know, I don't think there will be an issue in relation to civil rights and I think um to, people, to public safety and member safety is, is the crucial issue here.
3: Okay, and, and what about drones? Um, it's one thing, you filming, what you're looking at. Uh, it's a different thing sending something into the sky and possibly going over people's property. Uh, it, how do you uh, envisage drones will be used by Angarda Siakana? Well, I,
4: I'm there I'm, I'm aware that there's a policy being drawn up at the moment, but I'm sure any issues in relation to that will, will, will be addressed as um you know, as as the same as all policies in Angardish economy.
3: Okay. Uh, what's the mood amongst members? Uh, would you say this year? Um, uh, uh, do you feel uh, as uh, though uh, there's the resource and uh, the support for the force uh, that you would like uh, to see, uh, not just from government, uh, but support for uh, Angerishy economy from uh, the public? Uh,
4: well, the public, uh, the, gar- gar- the gar- Angerishy economy, have always enjoyed uh, the confidence of the public, a strong confidence of the public. Um, members are they're worried about. Um, And there's a lot of bureaucracy coming into the force at the moment. Members are worried that they're being tied up uh, with... um, um, overburdened with bureaucracy and that they're losing touch with uh, being out on the street, meeting the public, uh, particularly in relation sergeants and inspectors. They're not out supervising back out on the street on frontline policing. Uh, that is one issue that uh, members feel very strongly about.
3: Mm-hmm. That, uh, it could be... could be you know, but Bogged uh, down in the office with paperwork. And um, what about when out on uh, the beach? Do you believe that you have the tools to do the job? Uh, is there any mood uh, amongst your members uh, that the force should be armed? Uh, no, I
4: don't. I don't believe that there is. I think uh, the uh, the membership uh, the, in general do not believe that the force should be armed. The biggest issue is, is resources and there are not enough guards in the street. We need guards out in the streets, you know, to be seen and uh, patrol the streets up and down
3: guards on the beach. Uh, and with an increase in the population, possibly uh, 4%, if there's to be 200,000 refugees coming into the country, uh, that will be more policing. Uh, uh, and uh, the minister was also talking about you maybe taking evidence from refugees coming into this country about Russian war crimes. How do your members feel about that? Uh, Well,
4: I I can't comment on that, as I'm not aware of that uh, at the moment, Uh, Michael.
3: Okay, okay, that's fair enough. All right, Ronan, we'll we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us. I know you have to be at conference. Uh, As you say, that motion is about uh, to be debated by your members. And thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. Ronan Clower, Deputy General Secretary of the AGSI. That's the Association of Guard Sergeants and Inspectors.
1: Michael Michael Reid Reid on on LMFM.
3: A ballot of some 7,500 hospital doctors is to take place, which could result in industrial action. Indeed, it could even result in strike action. Uh, Let's hear a little bit more from uh, Dr. Brian Doyle, a member of the IMO's NCHD committee. And a very good morning to you, Brian. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. Non-consultant hospital doctors, NCHDs, are are fundamental to how hospital operate. If seven and a half thousand doctors go on strike, what would that mean uh, in terms of hospitals providing services?
5: Uh, Good morning Michael to you and your listeners and thank you for having me on. Um, So the IMO have launched um, our Standing Up for NCHD campaign and what that does involve is really highlighting I suppose the almost historic issues at this stage that NCHDs have been dealing with uh, on the front line of the health system for, the, for, for, for many years now. And this is predating the recent uh, COVID pandemic. The issues that we, we have really are around, you know, the, the core one probably is working mm-hmm. hours. Um, what is normal for an NCHD is, is, is just not normal. We regularly work sixty to 70-hour weeks, 24-hour shifts, and often, you know, 11 to 12 days uh, working uh, in a row.
3: Yeah, you have very, seri- very serious grievances. There's no doubt about that, and I, I think even the manner in which questions were posed in your survey indicate that you asked people uh, if uh, they were were routinely routine, r- routinely abused by administrators in the hospitals? Uh, The answer was overwhelmingly yes, and we can go through some of those findings in a a moment. Uh, But just to go back to the prospect, if there is really a prospect of strike action, what would that do to hospitals? Would that effectively shut hospitals down?
5: So I think that the core of this campaign, uh, Michael, is, is, is not just NCHD welfare, but patient safety. And I think that's fundamentally what this all comes down to. None of us go into medicine for any other reason for a love of just wanting to help people and wanting to help patients. But our ability to do that, our hands are completely tied um, based on the current working conditions uh, that we're dealing with. We have no choice but to um, ballot our members for industrial action to try and change the way we do uh, business and healthcare in this country. And what I mean by that is realistic workforce planning. I think the HSC need to sit down with the IMO and look at how many doctors we actually need to adequately, to safely work in our hospital to deliver safe patient care. And until we do that, we need to leave everything on the table up to and including uh, strike action. But that is a last resort. What we're asking our members to do is to consider is the situation serious enough to consider industrial action? We're confident that our members support this and we must ballot them in order to, 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 to formally uh, gain that support. Once we have done that, and I'm confident that that ballot will pass, uh, it will allow us to engage with the HSE uh, on a basis that they have only ever responded to before, and that is with a threat of industrial action. But it is a real threat and it is one that we're willing to engage Mm, with. Fair enough,
3: Uh, uh, and you're taking it very slowly. I think a a couple of weeks ago you said that uh, uh, you were going to get to this stage uh, where you would meet and decide as to whether the ballot people. Now you've decided to ballot people, and that's going to take place in, what, four weeks is it, or when is the ballot going to take place?
5: So the ballot's going to open in the the coming uh, two to three weeks, and it will take approximately one month To uh, allow, I suppose, us to go out to our members and explain. Uh, why we've chosen to do this now and to to, to hear from them right. as to the timings and what, what what needs to happen.
3: Yeah, but 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 over the course of the five or six weeks uh, that uh, this campaign has been running or will be running by the time that vote comes in, uh, you're, sure. you're 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 giving the HSE a, a chance to consider uh, your issues, and you have very serious grievances with ninety six percent of NCHDs. So that's hospital doctors working over forty eight hours a week. Forty percent working over 24 hours in one shift and doctors saying that they weren't paid for all of the hours that they worked for that matter so there's a a very serious reason for this uh, campaign that I think a lot of people would be able to sympathize with uh, and has there been any engagement with uh, the HSE thus far
5: there has been no no meaningful um you know responses come about the last uh, campaign the IMO has run that was that was to do with working hours back in 2013 and that was to do with uh, working no more than 24 hours in one shift. Can you imagine that we were in a situation where that was probably the best we could do based on the staffing levels that we had? In 2013, it wasn't unusual to work 36, 37, 38 hours in a single shift. Uh, Thankfully, you know, there's been a significant reduction in that, but it is still the norm to work 24-hour shifts. If you were to compare that to any other industry, the airline industry, the hauliers, for example, there is significant restrictions on what uh, workers in those those industries can safely work. If your loved one goes into hospital, you do not want a doctor who's been working 25 or 26 hours looking at them in their most vulnerable and trying to diagnose and treat them in a safe manner. This is about patient safety as much as it is about the welfare of NCHDs. We're here to represent our members and make sure that they have safe working conditions But we have to think about patients, and this is, you know, it it is about both of those things.
3: Is it the size of the workforce, or is it how the workforce is rostered that's at the root of this?
5: Ultimately, we need more doctors, uh, and I think realistic um, workforce planning has has to be undertaken, and we need an acknowledgement from the HSC and from the government as to how many doctors we actually need to safely staff our hospitals. That isn't going to happen overnight, but we need that to be acknowledged and we need a plan put in place to achieve that. But in addition to that, the 7,500 doctors who are classed as non consultant hospital doctors are doctors in specialist training. Not only do they have to meet the obligations of, 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 of working in hospitals, they're also required to meet postgraduate training obligations, which in effect after university means taking almost another degree between postgraduate um, exams. and and other degrees at a higher level. That is a significant burden in a system that requires you to move around to 12 or 13 different hospitals over a seven or eight-year period during your specialist training. And when you couple that with the working conditions that we've outlined, the long hours, the working 11 or 12 days in a row, 24-hour shifts, it's an extreme stress that, that, that is placed on MCHDs and our members have reported an extremely high risk of burnout. I think over 84% uh, reported as being vulnerable to to burnout in the previous uh, 12 months. It's not sustainable. It's not something you want for a family member who works in the profession, and it's certainly not something you want for a family member who's being cared for, in a system that is reliant on NCHDs to to, to keep it going,
3: burnt out, uh, undoubtedly because of uh, these long hours. Ninety-one percent, uh, I think, your survey said, uh, are suffering uh, from mental illness uh, because of uh, the stress of all of this. Seventy percent uh, of uh, your uh, survey uh, doctors said they're unhappy. Uh, so we're talking about people. Uh, uh, who are not just falling asleep and they're standing, uh, but uh, have obviously got uh, a lot going on in their minds, uh, other than the care of uh, the patient uh, in front of them.
5: There, there are immediate things the HSC d- can do to, to, to make working life as an NCHD more straightforward and less stressful. As part of service provision and also as part of specialist training, you move to different hospitals that do different types of work. That is a necessary part of being a doctor but it shouldn't be stressful. You shouldn't have to do, you know, hours and hours of paperwork every three or six months when you move hospital. Mm. You shouldn't have to be, go back on emergency tax every time you move hospital. You shouldn't have to have, you know, you know, rent in one city and rent in another city at the same time because you're moving around with any kind of respect for family life or for, you know, for those who have kids where they might be in school. There is no, there is no planning around that as a system. It's just taken for granted that you're told to go here, there or anywhere and off you go. Nice. And it's very, very, uh, it can be very, very stressful. And we, we do see large numbers of NCHDs emigrating, some, you know, very early on in their careers, others will will move later on. And the risk is when they go to a different system, whether it be Australia, New Zealand to Canada, and they see better working conditions, the risk is they don't come back. And we're seeing that. There were mm-hmm. over 450 visas granted for for Irish doctors in Australia and New Zealand uh, last year. Are those doctors going to come back? I don't know.
3: Uh, What kind of a relationship uh, do you have with uh, management um, in uh, the hospitals? I was pretty shocked uh, at uh, how um, the survey was phrased uh, and as to whether hospital administrators routinely abused NCHDs in terms of working hours and if hospitals oversee appalling working conditions for NCHDs. It, It doesn't sound like there's a very good relationship between the two of you.
5: This all comes back to the HSC and how it organises itself. There is no centralised management of NCHDs who routinely move hospitals every six months. Uh, there is no centralised way of managing all of the training that's required, all of the you know the, the, the mandatory training you need for health and safety standards in hospitals. There's no system there that seems to work that, that informs a new hospital of a new NCHD coming along. Well, look, this person's already worked in this hospital. They have all of this stuff done already. We seem to have to, um, you know, provide everything as if we were walking in the door. It was our first day on the job out of medical school. Seven or eight years Mm. down the line, and it's uh, it's very stressful. It varies from hospital to hospital as to to what the relationships are like. But unfortunately, we are viewed as transient workers because of the frequency with which we move. So the ability to form relationships locally is is low. And that is, unfortunately, because of the design of the system that we work in.
3: And there are six-month contracts you could be working in different hospitals for each of the six months over a period of, what, five or six years?
5: Uh, so the minimum you will, uh, you will spend, I suppose, uh, as an NCHD is probably around six years, but it goes all the way up to 12 years, and that varies on the specialty that you're doing. Right. These are, these are at, at stages of life that people are, like I said, trying to put down roots, whether it be start a family or embed yourself in a community and do all the normal things mm. that human beings want to do. Yeah. And you could, you could be in your mid-30s or approaching your, you know, your, 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 your you know, even forty, mm. and you're still moving around the country trying to have your kids in one school trying to see your partner and doing extreme hours.
3: Uh, And could that not be pre-planned? I mean you talked about the way the HSE organises itself. What about health authorities in other countries? Do they look to years in advance before uh, people uh, take up contracts in in different hospitals? Because it's not just the position that you're in that you have to move around and apply for a new job every six months uh, as such. Uh, But we quite often hear of hospitals uh, who run the risk of not being able to provide services because there's not enough applicants, not enough doctors looking for the jobs.
5: Absolutely, it can be planned in advance. Of course it can. Um, and, I, and I cannot give you the answer as to why it's not. Uh, it does happen in other countries, even in the UK, for example, if you happen to have uh, two, two, pe- you know, two people in a relationship who work in the same, uh, same discipline, if you like, medicine or whatever, or surgery, they, they will, those respective training bodies and, and employers will try to facilitate co-locating families together. Uh, It can happen, but there has to be a will on the part of the NCHD to see this as an issue and to make it happen. We need to make Ireland an attractive place to work. We all want to work in Ireland, see our families, be here with them, uh, put down roots. But when you see what's on offer abroad in terms of quality of life, just less stress, just being able to enjoy life uh, and do normal things, that is the threat that the Irish Health System faces. And that's for nurses, that's for doctors, that's for all healthcare professionals. So, Until we have an an acknowledgement from the HCC of these issues, I don't think we're going to be able to go very far.
3: OK, well, uh, your ballot is to take place, as you say, in the next two, three weeks uh, and uh, you'll uh, decide how to act uh, from there and I'm sure uh, that will happen over a period of time for that matter. The HSE has been put on warning. Brian, thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Dr Brian Doyle, a member of the IMO NCHD Committee.
1: Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM.
3: FM. Now to Premier Perry Clays and if uh, the company can be saved by closing it down for 18 months and letting most of uh, the workforce go. That's uh, the question uh, that the examiner has been given time to examine uh, by the High Court, as you heard on the programme yesterday. Let's uh, find out what the workers think about this. Willie Quigley is uh, the regional officer with the United Trade Union. A very good morning to you, Willie, and thank you indeed for joining us here on the programme uh, this morning. Uh, are, Are your members running out of options here?
6: Morning, Well, you know, the the work of the examiner in any case, I suppose, deserves due course and every opportunity to bring about a solution that uh, would satisfy the workers and keep them all in their jobs. That's number one priority. But at this moment in time, it would seem that uh, an investor, a potential investor from Australia, has uh, gone off the pitch and it would appear that that investor possibly had more potential than the current potential investor that's been uh, spoken to by the examiner. Now, I don't know how true or how accurate that is, but it seems from all the information that's available that that may be the case. The current potential investor doesn't seem to be uh, a company that, um, you know, has engaged in the type of industry that goes on in Premier Paris. is. But nevertheless, uh, the High Court accepted the argument that was made and granted more time. At this juncture, we're unclear of how much more time that is. But one thing we do know is that when the 150 days uh, time was granted back some time by the Court, and that was 50 days above the norm because the norm is 100 days, um, I think, and the extra 50 days was because of the COVID situation. But that expiry date of those 150 days would appear to be the 13th of May. Now, how far beyond that uh, this current uh, extension goes, or does it go beyond that at all, Um, we don't know. But we believe that more information around that will be available from the examiner later
3: this week. Okay. Uh, but uh, it's a very complicated situation, isn't it? Uh, If we're talking about closing a company temporarily, uh, where does that leave your members if that turns out to be the case?
6: Well, you know, from experience um, in in this type of situation, and, you know, back the years, this type of situation was common enough, unfortunately. But to me, uh, I, I don't have great faith in anything that says the gates need to be closed and the people that supply there needs to be outside the gate, made redundant on statutory redundancy, paid by the state, and that they will get their jobs back, or possibly get their jobs back, in 15 to 18 months. Because that is the time span that's been spoken mm. of, that would uh, this potential investor says they would need to convert the plant to renewable energy away from the current energy. Now, mm. uh, Sitting alongside that, you still have... Uh, the death that's to, uh gosh, and, and, and Energia.
3: So, About three and a half million, isn't
6: it? Yeah, so mm. so that's still sitting there. Mm. So I would presume that if there's a deal to be done with any potential investor, that there has to be taken care of within that engagement and, and that outcome. Mm. So at this moment in time, if the employees hear nothing other than an arrangement possibly could be made or agreed with the examiner and a potential investor to save the plant, but you the employee will have to head off into the sunset for possibly 18 months. Mm. Now if I was one of those employees, and unfortunately i have a person that I always calls a spade a spade, I wouldn't have in that. Mm. But the government, in my opinion, cannot sit idly by the, and it seems that in cases like this that's what the government do exactly. That's exactly what they do uh, the feel it's a good excuse to, to sit on the hands and do nothing because there's an examiner in place. Now on one hand you could understand that to some extent, yeah. but what good is that to an employee that's paying a mortgage hmm. and with the prices of everything in, in energy anyway.
3: Yeah. It yeah, no, couldn't be a worse it time. Yeah. yeah, just couldn't be a worse time, there's no doubt about it, but um, whether the plant closes temporarily or permanently uh, uh, you'd have to assume that there is no money for redundancy given the level of debt.
6: Well, once it's an examinership maker, <coughs> the redundancy money, which is the obligation under the legislation of statutory redundancy, now, people never went out of that plant without a top-up, but on this occasion, if this were to happen, they'll go out of that plant, and that plant or that company won't be paying the statutory redundancy, it'll be paid by the state from mm. the Social Endurance Fund.
3: mm yeah,
6: and uh, the, the, the the employer has written to the to the department last week, uh, telling the department of the risk to to job roles and uh, putting in place the twenty day consultation period starting from last Thursday right. or, or Wednesday. Mm. So, you know, there's stuff happening that uh, is very very concerning, and should be and and rightly so to the employees. And I would have thought all local politicians should be jumping up and down to see where they can lend a hand in impressing on the government to do something about this situation. This developed, as you know well, mm-hmm. because of the surge in the price of energy. Yeah. And it put the plant into a situation where if they paid their bill, they'd become insolvent. And, so
3: and that's what this investor a wants. A
6: crisis, Michael, mm-hmm. sometimes needs temporary measures. Yeah. But some of the engagement that has happened so far seems to be an employer on behalf of an examiner or both wanting to sort of change things permanently and forever.
3: Well, you can understand, given uh, the way the world is at the moment and the price of energy, that they would want to switch from natural gas to renewables. Uh, But the fact that it's going to take 18 months uh, means that people will be out of work for 18 months. Uh, Is it possible to negotiate... um, their jobs for them so that uh, when the company reopens the plant, if it does do that, that those jobs uh, would be still there for those who are currently working there?
6: Well, if there was anybody uh, still around that didn't pick up another job in the meantime and willing to return, I suppose they might avail of that opportunity. But I would have no faith in something that tells me if I was an employee that you're outside the gate for 15 months or 18 months and uh, you'll get your job back. Because history will tell you that in situations like that, where promises were made like that before, mm. they're almost never, ever materialized. So I, I wouldn't have faith in that type of thing. But the other thing is, I don't know what sort of renewable energy that uh, a potential investor might think can mm. run this plant to the temperatures that it needs. You know, I, I, I don't believe, you yeah. know, heat from waste recycling type of thing for example would you know give the heating temperatures that's okay. required
3: h- h- How many jobs are at risk, Willie?
6: Well, there's something between 80 and 90 I think in, yeah. in, in the place of the presently
3: Okay Okay, well uh, it'll uh, play out over the next week or two is it? Uh, when things will be a bit clearer? Well,
6: I think more information will become available this week but given the information that's currently out there and given that the employer has written to the department and put them on notice of uh, redundancies and the 30-day consultation period starting. Now, there's nothing in that that fails to the department, and by the way, all these people will definitely be back in 15 or 18 months.
3: Okay, Willie, we'll leave there for the moment. Thank you Thanks indeed. Very Thanks very much. Okay. Willie Quigley, Regional Officer with uh, the Unite Trade Union.
1: Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM.
3: Now, just some of uh, the comments coming to us uh, this morning. Uh, Thanks uh, to Grania and Drahadu, who says, I think we should be encouraging people to join on Garda-Shiaqqana by having better pay and conditions. It's a dangerous job, and as we've seen by the number of guardi who've lost their lives or being seriously assaulted, people don't have the same regard for the force. Which is sad, in my opinion. She says we also uh, need a good guard of force to ensure that all of us can be safe and feel safe, for that matter. And it's probably true, Grania says, to say that most people probably don't really appreciate the guardy. Until they need them, that is. Uh, Another call from Sean in Mornington saying uh, the government is talking about giving money to people on social welfare who get the fuel allowance to help them pay to heat their homes and they're quite entitled to it. But the problem is I'm a pensioner and my wife is too and we're just over the limit to qualify for the fuel allowance, which means we won't get this extra support. And. I don't think that's fair. As the prices are going up and it's affecting all of us I don't feel it's right that only people on the fuel allowance get this additional help as we're all struggling to pay and there's a huge increase in the bills. Thanks uh, very much uh, Sean in morning for that. Let's stay with that. Uh, we're joined by Sean Moynihan who's uh, the CEO of Alone and a very good morning to you Sean and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. It seems as though the government is going to move to do a number of things, not just that in in uh, the fuel allowance, which if you do qualify, will give you an extra €99 euro in a, a lump sum three weeks altogether. But they're also uh, talking about this €110 euro because of uh, the reduction in VAT 13.5% to 9% which will be €49 euro on your gas and 61 less uh, on your electricity in a, a full year, they estimate. Uh, and then they're also talking about scrapping the public service obligation, which would give people uh, close to €60 euro a, a year. Uh, what do you make of it all? Is it enough? Uh, are, are people like uh, Sean Wright to be uh, out of sorts because they don't qualify for the fuel allowance? Or what do you make of it?
2: Yeah, I think I think. Look, at the end of the day, is, is we all see <coughs> the effects of the uh, of the energy crisis, and we see the effects of, of, of inflation. I think it's right that we put a floor under people who are on fixed incomes, young and old. Do you know what I mean? But we also realise that there's an awful lot of low-paid low people, young and old, that ultimately are affected by this. For us, you know, we know it's going to affect everybody, but we need to protect those who haven't got the, the ability to, um, to, 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 to respond and also those for which there are also health and other issues involved.
3: Mm. Uh, and in terms of what's being proposed here, is it striking the right balance?
2: I think what I'd say to you is, is you can see where they're trying to give some money to the whole population and yep. ease the burden, and they're trying to give it, uh, it to, to people who qualify for the bill allowance. We think there isn't much relationship between what they're giving and the extra costs that people are incurring. So as a short-term measure, we appreciate it, we welcome it, we think it's a good thing, it'll ease some of the pressures, but I do think we now need a wider conversation. And what are we going to do with inflation? Mm. Because we all know the dangers of that for those on low incomes, those on pensions, those on living alone, those on health issues and those who are marginalised. And I think we're going to have to go back and get all the social partners together and have a conversation to create, make sure we don't end up in spirals of measures, of short term measures and spirals of issues and cost increases.
3: Alright. Uh, did you wake up uh, scratching your head this morning? I did uh, because we've been talking about VAT for the last couple of months and the government's saying it's not possible to bring the rate of VAT down uh, and now it's bringing it down to thir- from 13.5% to 9%. Uh, we had been told over the last couple of months uh, that that will have to reverse uh, and if you bring it down like that it won't go back to 13.5% it'll go back up to 23% uh, but it, it seems as though there's uh, some different opinion on that now.
2: I, I think what I'd say to you is, is, you know yourself. I mean, the pandemic was the greatest prover of all the things that were impossible became possible. Mm. Does that make sense? Yep. Yeah. And so ultimately, is is, you know, we we view the inflation that like the pandemic during the pandemic we had to put a floor under our economy. In inflation, we feel we have to put a floor under, under our people and people who are marginalised and people that will struggle the most. And. You know whether it's the VAT which will appreciate everybody, the widening of the fuel allowance, thing, the increasing, and then the conversations for the more, you know, in the likes of the the the, the energy strategies, and you know what I mean, mm. that that we have to have, and bringing everybody together to manage inflation. So it's short term, but really that in at the moment, but we really need to be having much more long term conversations, or else. Um, We're just going to get announcements on announcements and it's going to get quite difficult.
3: Okay, some of this is already gobbled up before we even get to... receiving uh, this uh, boost, if you like, from uh, the government because the government is going to go ahead with uh, the increase in carbon tax. Now, it told us that it would offset that increase and I, I think that that's uh, what they're trying to do here in part, at least, by making sure that everybody is included in it. So they are taking it with one hand, uh, but they're giving it back with the other, kind of opposite to what you would always say about governments.
2: I, I think that's what they're doing, but I do think that the challenge there is... is is. Um, what they're giving back in the public service allowance, my understanding, is actually more than the carbon tax, right? I think everybody's focusing on the carbon tax, but on the far side, we do need to have long-term conversations about about energy provision, energy security. Mm-hmm. And also, we know that older people live in the lowest B or rated houses. The older people also have the least ability to uh, uh, apply for some of these grants. And we also know that o- older people are most affected by the cold and it has negative uh, health, health consequences as well. So, you know, we need to see that. Um, I think they're setting up a committee for the just transition and we really need to see that set up and know that action so that, again, we're putting a floor under those people who haven't got the ability uh, or to to and really need heating as a health as well as a welfare issue.
3: Mm. And I think we're all kind of conscious of when the heat is on and when it's off these days. I don't think uh, there's been that a kind of a, a awareness uh, for about 30 years when we used to watch the electricity meters going around to try and gauge what was costing most. In a lot of houses, people will remember doing that sort of thing uh, and uh, going to bed with plenty of blankets. Uh, but are, are you seeing people People uh, make decisions uh, that you'd prefer they weren't making, leaving the heat off and that sort of thing.
2: I, th- I think that's really, that's the crux of the matter here. I think, you know, you, in your introduction, like it was like, you know, there's an awful lot of stats, there's an awful mm. lot of money, uh, numbers flying around. But the reality is those people who uh, live on their own, especially those people, especially over 75, who maybe only have the basic basic pension, which is a low, below the poverty line, do not have any give in what they have. And ultimately, is, is they are making really difficult choices. They may not have the money to travel anymore, put petrol in a car if they're lucky enough to have a car. They may not be able to heat the house to the desired temperature on the basis of keeping themselves healthy and warm. They may not be able to socialise and becoming more isolated and lonely and all of these things. Yeah. So the reality is is that's what the choices are underneath all these stats and numbers.
3: All right, and We probably do have uh, time to talk uh, about the stats and numbers and to prevent that from being commonplace as we go into next winter uh, because uh, I think the temperatures are to rise going into the Easter weekend. Hopefully they'll last for a couple of months uh, and that... Uh, the energy crisis, the global crisis uh, that we're facing uh, doesn't look like it's going to end any time soon. And uh, there could even be rationing of uh, fuel and uh, gas, oil, that sort of thing, depending on what happens in in Ukraine. Uh, But it's a, a very tall challenge at the same time, isn't it, Sean?
2: I think it is. I think the reality is, and this is why I mentioned inflation on top of, you know, food prices are going up and the basics of, bread, milk, all of these types of things. So so there's a bigger issue. Uh, you know, some of the energy may ease off during the summer. You know, the, the less pressure on that. But the reality is the pressure is then coming from a, a different direction. And that's why we need a wider conversation. We, yes, these short-term measures are welcomed. Yes, these things will help to a certain extent, people, but we really need to uh, start a conversation of how we're going to deal with this inflation on the basics as well as energy.
3: Okay, All right. we'll leave it there for the moment. Thanks as always for joining us. Always good to talk to you. Sean Moynihan, Chief Executive Officer of Loam. Deirdre and Kells, thank you indeed uh, for the call to the programme today saying that the HSE may pay doctors more as people who are due operations will be affected badly if industrial action goes ahead uh, is possible given how they're going to ballot for industrial action and possibly strike action. Brian Navin says he doesn't know how hospital doctors do it; they work such long hours. And uh, your guest, uh, that's Doctor Brian Doyle, who's Nancy uh, HD himself. He said Brian says uh, that Doctor Doyle was right um, that a patient would rather be looked after by someone who's fresh not somebody who's exhausted and stressed out. He says, I don't know how they put up with these conditions. Well, the doctors, I suppose, uh, at this stage are saying that um, they're not willing to put up with it much longer. Uh, A text to us from Clare in County Meath, who says, good morning Michael. Good on the doctors. Lorry drivers have to stop for rest. Doctors should claim plenty of rest time. The HSE only seem to talk to them when they hear about Industrial action or strike action, the HSE should pay all hospital staff above and beyond what they're currently paying them. They're angels, the whole lot of them, uh, Claire says. Thank you uh, for sharing that, uh, Claire. I'm sure uh, that'll be appreciated uh, by people working in the health service and our hospitals for that matter. And thanks uh, for taking the time to text and share your opinion with us uh, for that matter. If you haven't done that uh, today yourself and you'd like to do that, we'd love to hear from you.
1: Michael Reid on,
3: on LMFM. Now let's speak uh, to Sinn Féin councillor in Louth, Tomáš Sharkey. Good morning to you and uh, thanks uh, for joining us. Uh, we were listening to you speaking in uh, the news bulletins uh, this morning about developers who leave housing estates unfinished. Uh, you want them to be blacklisted. Tell us uh, about some of the problems uh, that developers have been leaving behind them, if you would, please. Hello. No, it seems to have gone off the line. Unfortunately, uh, we'll uh, try to uh, restore that line. I'm not sure what happened there. Uh, but it is a, an interesting uh, thing. I think probably uh, a lot of our listeners uh, have encountered problems in states and wonder why nobody has done about them and why the council won't take it in charge. And it can lead to a large... Uh, list of uh, problems and I think the problem that Councillor Sharkey has is not just that they've left estates unfinished but they've gone on to build other estates Uh, I'm told uh, Tomá Sharkey is back on uh, the line Uh, good morning to you and uh, thanks for joining us I'm not sure what happened there but uh, thanks for coming back to us Uh, you want these developers uh, to be blacklisted by the council
7: I do indeed, Mike, and good morning to yourself and your listeners. My apologies that the the line dropped on us there. What well, we have in the Dundalk Municipal District, we have a list of estates that have yet to be taken in charge, and we've got engineering staff who are working hard on assessing the estates for whatever works needs to be done for the estate to be taken in charge. That means that if I've bought a house in, in an estate of 50, 50 homes, and we now want the developer to hand the estate over to the council, all the services, the lights, the footpaths, the drainage, the sewers, the, the public services would all be in place as they should be. Mm. And then it's taken in charge publicly into the public domain. Now, what I'm saying is now that we have a list in front of us in the Knock Municipal District of the estates that have yet to be taken in charge, but there's a problem. There's a problem that some of them need engineering works done, and there's an even bigger problem that the cash bonds, the cash deposits mm-hmm. that the developers were to have left with the council we don't have them. We don't have the money.
3: Okay. Gone. Come back to that. That sounds bizarre. I'll come back to that in a moment. But tell me about some of uh, the problems. Uh, what has not been done? What work has not been done in these estates?
7: Uh, drainage, water main infrastructure has been assessed. Issues with way leaves over sewage pipes in estates.
3: What does that mean? Does that mean that water isn't coming into the house, or clean water isn't coming into the house, and it's not going out of the house properly as it should?
7: It means there that, first of all, there's two types of drains that will come out of a housing space. Mm. there would be the storm water. It's a rainy day here, and it's the water that's coming off into the drainage system. Right, so yeah. those drains have been inspected. They're not fully up to spec. So they're potentially broken, cracked. They're They're not running at the right level. The water's not getting away or not. It's mm. not following the proper sustainable herbage drainage uh, system which means that all the water could go through the drains hit the one spot at one time and yeah. cause flash flooding. Yeah. Otherwise as well we also have a system with the main sewers so the main sewers have to be inspected and I know myself my own experience where we've had cameras put down main surge in the States only to find full breeze blocks sitting in the sewer pipes and that's what's been causing the backlog up there. So we've issues like that going on in the States. Right. We've got the state in, in state in Black Rock where there's problems with the public lighting across mm. the estate so people bought into an estate were shown beautiful photographs and uh, imagery graphics of how the estate will look and the lights aren't working or if the lights do get fixed that the lights blow straight away mm. so there are problems in the public infrastructure or what will be the public infrastructure in these estates and when the estate has been taken
3: in charge and very serious i mean you can't be walking around in the dark and i take it toilets back up and that sort of thing uh, with some of those sewage problems
7: Exactly. And when, when a young family or any family, of, regardless of the age, buy a home, they, they're they buying a home in a serviced estate. They're buying a home and they expect that the services are all in place because that's part of the price. You, If you're paying €290,000 for a home in an estate, you know that there's a proportion of that cost has gone to the developer putting the services in, mm. in the estate. But this developer is leaving site. The estate isn't being taken in charge. The footpaths aren't fully uh, up to spec. The kerbstones on the side of the footpath are loose and rattling. The the sewage pipes aren't, aren't fully connected. And the drainage is probably going to cause flash flooding because a lot of this has been inspected by overworked engineering staff in the council. But when we then go to try and get the works done, the 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 repairs done by the developer, we find, number one, the developer is no longer available, or number two, as a situation from an estate in 2010, the €297,000 cash bond that was a condition of the planning permission doesn't
3: exist. That's kind of like an insurance fund, uh, that uh, when you uh, get the planning permission, you do it with this cash bond. Uh, if the estate is finished, I take it, you get the money back, uh, and if the estate isn't finished, that money can be used to finish it.
7: Exactly. So right. will I give so, you a scenario? So uh, wh- will I give you the well, just, scenario? Well, just
3: tell me why that 297,000 euro... I mean, if that was part of the terms and conditions, why does the council not have it?
7: And that's what we've been asking for a long time in Loud County Council. In July 2010, Loud County Council voted for a part date and granted planning permission for 90 houses called Gertnamara and Blackrock. Condition number 23 was that a cash bond of 297,000 euros would be submitted to the council prior to development. And that was for the orderly development and to ensure that the that the estate would be finished. Mm. That was in 2010. That was a part eight. That was condition number 23, that we would have 297,000 euros of a cash bond submitted. And it was passed by the council. The estate, the people... Families are in the homes, the estate has yet to be taken in charge and in that estate we have an engineer who's working hard trying his best to contact and hasn't received a response from the developer in three years on issues to do with the drainage system in the estate. You would like to think that if we can't get the developer back to do it well we would have the €297,000 to get the work done. Mm. An official in county Council went off to find the bond And he had to report to us last week that the bond is unavailable. Either we didn't ask for the bond, we didn't enforce the developer to hand over the bond, or we did receive the bond and we lost it, (laughs) or we received the bond and we gave it back. And that's a €297,000 hole in Loud County Council's accounts.
3: You're messing. I'm not. Nobody knows where the money is or if it was ever received
7: the report says that the bond is unavailable. And if anybody uh, is in front of a computer today and looks up Lightfoot to cancel mm-hmm. the planning, per, planning system, and if you look up the planning code from 2010-212, you'll also see all the documentation to that planning and you'll see a line that, um, that a, a, a holding document was put in place in relation to the planning development contributions and to refer to finance for the expiry date. Mm. So there's something going on so 29- with some of these applications.
3: There should be €297 Euro I- I in a bank account belonging to Loud County Council and the explanation is that it, it's not available. That's not an explanation.
7: Well, I'll, I'll read out. In 2010, mm. the 12th of July 2010, the condition was the developer shall lodge with Loud County Council a cash deposit of €297,000 mm. as a security to ensure the satisfactory completion of the development and all services associated therewith. Mm unless otherwise agreed in writing with the council, the sum shall be paid in full before any development commences. So we don't see any agreement with the council. The 297,000 euros should be there with the council. And now we, last week at Dundalk Municipal District meeting, chaired by Councillor Maria Doyle, we were told that the initial site inspection was carried out. There Issues been identified that are to be rectified. Irish Water have assessed and have issued a snag list. The developer was to respond to rectify the issues. The developer was asked for an update in May 2019. The official contacted the developer in October 2021. And to the date, there is no response. The bond is unavailable.
3: But what does that mean? Like why that is it why is it not available? As you said, did they ever get it or did they lose it or where is it? I mean, it's a lot of money and if it's not available, somebody is going to have to pay it and I hope somebody pays it for the people in that estate so that they have a decent place to live after buying their houses and uh, the biggest purchase of their lives, but if it's not the developer who as you have explained to us, should be paying for it, well, then it's going to be the taxpayer. We're all going to have to pay for this. Why is that the case?
5: Uh, why
7: is that the case? I believe that the planning conditions haven't been enforced. I believe that we're not being vigilant and allowed County Council ensuring that the planning permissions planning conditions are being lived up to This is a planning condition that was penned by the County Manager at the time because this particular estate Curtinamire and Black Rock, was a part ace development. So it went in front of the Council at the July 2010 County Council meeting The conditions were proposed were, were drafted by the County Manager and were accepted on the part A. By the elected yeah. councillors in 2010 we the elected councillors expected, accepted and assumed that the 297,000 euro cash bond would be lodged with the council prior to
3: commencement. It's a bit of an oversight isn't it? It, it, it's a, it is a bit of an oversight. Yeah, 297,000 euro
7: Well Michael we've just I think 13 similar states in the Dundalk municipal area of unavailable
8: bonds. Hmm
7: unavailable bonds. So I haven't got I haven't fully researched all the other estates but this particular one where the site inspection has been carried out, issues have been identified, Irish Water have assessed the and issued a snag list and an official, God love him, in the council, he, he works hard in the, the taking in charge section. He's been waiting since May twenty nineteen, nearly three years for mm. word back. But the official in the council is waiting nearly three years. But the residents who have been paying who agree the price who have the mortgages and the mortgages is a, is, is a chain around their ankles and are paying their mortgage every month they're going on living in an state where the developer has not come back in three months to rectify snags that have been issued yeah. by irish water
3: and the council and to, hasn't explained what it means when it says the money isn't available
7: it's unavailable some poor devil working in the taking in charge section and allowed County Council has gone off asking the finance section, asking the, the planning enforcement section about this bond. It's not available. Now, if you or I were in a business partnership, Mike, and if you asked me, you know, where's that 50,000 euros that we were going to invest? And if I said, it's not available, Mike, either you gave it to me and I lost it, you gave it to me, and I spent it, or you didn't give it to me.
3: (laughs) Anyway, it's not available, whatever that means. It's one of them, one of of the above, as you say.
7: It's one of the above, Mike, and I think that's very disappointing, but I think that it's part of a culture, uh, and it's uh, uh, Deputy Imelda Munster and myself in the early noughties when we were going on about cash bonds and development levies had been raising this issue in our early days in Loud County Council. But this was a 2010 planning application. It's not like 20 years ago. Mm. This isn't a historical application. This is still ongoing. We still have staff scratching their heads, wondering how they're going to organise for the sewage works to be finished, for the footpaths to be finished, for the streetlights to be working properly. Scratching their heads, going off and asking their seniors in the council, what can we do to make sure people living in this estate are living in a good estate with the public services that they've paid up for and expect? And we've been told, well, we, we don't know. We, we, didn't, we didn't bring the developer in and make him live up to his conditions before he put his shovel on the site.
3: OK, well, look, we'll leave it there for the moment. I'm not sure. And I, I'm sure we'll come back for I'm time. sure we will. I'm not sure what to say. <laughs> As I said to you earlier, I thought you were messing. Uh, but we'll leave it there for the moment. And thank you indeed uh, for, joining us, for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. Sinn Councillor in Louth, Tomá Sharkey. Michael, Michael
1: Reed on, on LMFM.
3: FM. Oxfam is calling on the G20, the IMF and uh, the World Bank to act immediately to avoid a catastrophe. Uh, crisis to begin with uh, followed by catastrophe uh, according to a major report that's published today from Oxfam. Let's uh, speak now to Jim Clarkin, who is uh, the CEO of Oxfam Ireland and a very good morning to you Jim and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, We've had crisis after crisis and uh, I suppose it's not just a question of picking uh, which crisis you're talking about here perhaps a, a question of a combination of crises which are going to lead lead to a quarter of a billion people, you estimate, going into poverty, uh, what you're uh, estimating uh, means having less than $1.90 a day. This is extreme poverty, uh, and it's the combination of all of the major events that we've been living through in uh, the last number of years, uh, on top of each other, that are pushing people into poverty.
9: Good morning, Michael, yes, and, and thank you very much for having me. Uh, yeah, there there are a combination of factors that are leading to these very very stark and frightening numbers. And of course, behind every number and statistic is a real person and a real family and a real life. Um, and people are are really struggling. So we've seen, as everybody knows, the the COVID pandemic uh, impacted the poorest people in the world the worst. Uh, <clears throat> and the and that, that was often cases building on problems that were already there in very poor parts of the world. And then the, the, the war in Ukraine has now, you know, affected 25% of the supply of wheat and flour to, to the world. Uh, they're, they're, they're 20, they provide 25%, but in some countries they provide, you know, more than 50%, 90%, upwards, uh, almost 100% of all of that type of food that's grown. So, for example, you look at Eritrea and Somalia, Uh, to quite poor countries that are almost entirely reliant on food from that part of the world ordinarily to to be supplied in order for them to meet their needs. So, you know, when you see this, and it is a combination of things, I mean, the reason that that those countries cannot provide their own food is because of the impact of climate, the impact of the pandemic, in some cases, there there are conflict involved as well. So they've they've been caught in that spiral where they needed to import, uh, and now the you know, the prices of food have gone up so much throughout the world uh, that it's having a a devastating impact. The IPC, which is the part of the UN that categorizes, you know, food crises, Mm. talk about, you know, there are 21 million people in East Africa alone that are food insecure. We are... One step away from, and we we very rarely use this word as you know, Michael, I think we've talked about this before the word famine, but mm. uh, unless unless you reach that point, but by the time you reach that point, it's too late, and they're saying, "Look, we're one step away from there, so they're so the the world needs to act you know rapidly to ensure that we don't slide into that catastrophic situation for for so many people.
3: Yeah, okay, this is beyond our comprehension. Really, the mm, situation yeah. that people find themselves in. I mean, we're giving out about our electricity bills and so on, and quite rightly so. But this is a, a totally different sphere altogether, isn't it?
9: It is, and I mean, nobody wants to take from the the struggles that people are having here, and they're real and genuine struggles that lots of lots of people have across Ireland. And the you know the inflation and the increase in prices of everything are, are having a a big impact here but you know in some parts of the world you know in wealthier parts of the world it's it's kind of 17 20 25% of people's income is spent on food in poorer parts of the world it could be 50% so when inflation bites that and when supplies bite that then you're you're talking about just survival at that point so it is mm. you know it's not to compare one with the other but they're very you know the the impacts are are pretty devastating and um and you see it you know in in many parts of the world and Look, you know, we we still have to work out how to recover from the pandemic, let alone this this war that is having such an impact uh, everywhere, really.
3: Mm, uh, And uh, it's, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, an opportunistic time for uh, some very wealthy people and corporations. Uh, You're suggesting it as well, that people are making massive profits out of the crisis uh, that people around the world are living through.
9: Well, we 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 have reported on this in the past that <clears throat> during the pandemic, so, some sectors and some companies made super profits. I mean, it's, companies are there to make profit, and that's that's fine and reasonable. Uh, but they made super profits because of the nature of the industry they were in. The pharma industry, for example, or parts of it, certainly made these uber profits. Made. A whole range of people uh, in, turn them into billionaires. A lot of the billionaires across the world, and your your show was good enough to cover this before. Their their wealth increased dramatically during the pandemic. So you know it isn't a fair system for everybody. You know everybody hasn't been affected equally. And what we're calling, what we're saying, is that there it's now time to seriously look at wealth taxes for those uber wealthy people and and taxes on super profits to 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 find a way to to you know, to to move the world beyond the pandemic, beyond this this, Mm. war crisis and so on, and and to give everybody an opportunity. And it's not impossible. The the numbers stack up that with fairly modest, uh, you know, uh, wealth taxes. It could make a massive difference to to people across the world. And it it seems right and fair, considering, you know, the the, the wealth of these, these people who've grown this extraordinary wealth has come from ordinary people's work and has come from the economies and the societies in which we all live.
3: Okay, you're calling for action from the G20, the IMF, and the World Bank, and you have many recommendations. The Irish government today talking about reducing uh, the rate of VAT here on energy, uh, and you're saying that there should be permanent cuts on VAT around the world.
9: Well, I mean VAT VAT is a is a tax that affects poorest people the most. And um, so, if you're if you're wealthy, yes, of course you're affected by VAT, but the you know as a percentage of your overall spending, it's you know, it it doesn't have the same level of impact on you because that that we pay that on almost everything here, with the, with some small exceptions. So, you know, for people who need to buy essentials, if you can reduce VAT, it it just improves if it improves their you know the affordability of things for them. So certainly, it is it's a kind of a, it's a regressive tax, a necessary tax, but it's a, it's not a it's not an equalizing tax, if you know what I mean. Mm. So that certainly would be would be one recommendation. We also. We need to look at, you know, bigger kind of geopolitical solutions like cancelling debt for developing countries uh, to prevent, because at the moment, a lot of the the income that they do have is being used to service debt to big global international bodies. So if we cancel that debt, that money could be reinvested in essential health education uh, and and food supports where necessary. Um, It could be, you know, there are special... uh, Systems within within the international order that that allow for the drawing down of of resources that could be used uh, in a way that you know where, they, where there's a lot less debt involved and where people could where countries could spend that money quite quickly, and um, and then we need to have a specific focus on those poorest and most impacted countries, those countries that are on the verge of a major catastrophe. Mm. Uh, Ten years ago, and I've been around quite a while in, in this area, um, we averted. Globally, a major, major food crisis and starvation crisis across the Sahel region. So that goes from from west uh, to east Africa uh, because there was early intervention. So early intervention is key. It saves lives. It saves dignity. It actually costs less. And this sounds awful. We shouldn't be thinking about it in terms of cost. But uh, if you if you intervene early where there's a food crisis, the the impact that you avoid uh, results in, in a it costing an awful lot less for economies and for society mm. and obviously it it saves on the on the, the human suffering and and uh, tragedy that could unfold so it's about acting now it's about acting quickly it's about bringing in some initiatives that can transform this uh, let's remember that there is plenty of food in the world uh, the there is plenty of wheat in the world the wheat reserves across the world are still mm. strong despite what's happening in the, in the war in ukraine so it, it's really about access. So it's about ensuring that people have access to that. Yeah. And it's about using markets to support that and using investments and using government intervention and international intervention to make sure that the food gets to where it needs to get. And,
3: and I say that uh, wheat reserves are at risk, at least, of running out in three weeks in the occupied Palestinian territories. Uh, and uh, there's uh, a commitment uh, that hasn't been fulfilled by the European Commission to deliver €200 million million worth of uh, aid to Palestine, Uh, and uh, there's a lot of upset about this. The Irish government uh, has, uh, together with uh, a number of countries, uh, asked the Commission to fulfil its commitment to Palestine.
9: That's right, and Ireland has always been very strong and has been particularly strong on this issue, and, and credit to them. And, and Palestine is is an example, a classic example of one of those countries that's heavily dependent on imports of food. And the reason being because there's so much of their their land is occupied, so it's very difficult for them to get imp, imports for uh, for the to, for their own food production. Their farming industry is at its knees. There's ongoing violence and there's ongoing spreading of the settlements. So it's it's a real crisis. So that there's a a classic example of a country that, you know, that just can't produce the food because of other external factors and it's important that the eu and ireland support them but similarly the countries in east africa you know it's, it's a very similar situation where uh, they're not in a position to grow their own food because of the impact of climate because of other uh, external issues uh so they need to be supported to to ensure that they have access to the kind of food that they need um and that you know there's governments across the world uh, including the european union uh Deliver on the, the, the kind of interventions that are necessary that could make a transformational change to the trajectory we're headed on now if they intervene quickly.
3: Nice. Dreadful. Jim, thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Jim Clarkin is uh, CEO of Oxfam Ireland.
1: Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. FM.
3: And now, as usual, around this time on a Tuesday for our weekly visit to the Garda Crime Desk. As usual, there's a number of incidents. Garda, you're investigating locally. Perhaps you can assist with those investigations. Garda, Tara McManus of Dramad Station joins us for the report this week and thanks uh, for doing so we've quite a a number of burglaries to report on uh, again this week i'm going to begin with the first of uh, those burglaries this happened in navan last tuesday
8: good morning michael yes the first one we have is one that happened last tuesday the fifth of april at about half twelve in the afternoon it happened at ballerisk there in navan where um, ninja party returned home to find the glass patio door had been smashed um, a couple of bedrooms upstairs have been ransacked and a large quantity of jewellery and some cash was taken from the premises. Now, we don't have any description of the culprit, but due to the time of the day, half twelve in the afternoon, perhaps if anybody noticed anything unusual, we would ask them to contact our colleagues in Navan.
3: OK, another burglary again. Uh, this happened on Tuesday of last week. Uh, this time it's being investigated by Guardian Trim.
8: Yeah, this one happened at the Gillens Landis there um, in Trim on the Navan Road. Um, just happened in the middle of the day, so two um, Males went into the shop. One of them spoke with the shop assistant, and the other one distracted him. And they actually took a bag of debit and credit card receipts, which seems an unusual thing to take until you actually think of all the credit card scams that we have going on at the moment. So that information would be very useful to a culprit. So um, an unusual thing to take, but you know you can see kind of where they were going with that. So that happened in the middle of the day, Tuesday, the 5th of April, at 4 o'clock. Um, so an unusual one, and our. In Trim, looking after that one.
3: Okay, quite a, a lot of activity last Tuesday. Obviously, another burglary uh, that happened on Tuesday of last week uh, in Ashburn.
8: This one happened at Reesk. um Tuesday, the 5th of April, happened overnight where, a, again, a house was broken into. Um, a safe was taken from the house, and that safe contained some jewellery and some cash. Now, the safe was later discovered in a road just close to the house uh, obviously it was empty and they had taken everything from it um, so again they would have needed a car to conduct that sort of um, you know enterprise so we would be hoping that somebody perhaps um, in that area that might have been on the way to work might have noticed something unusual on that morning
3: Okay and again on Tuesday of last week uh, another burglary this one in Cullen.
8: Yeah, this one happened in Castle Lumley in Dunlaire. Um Again, one o'clock in the afternoon, Tuesday. A woman was actually in the house. She was upstairs cleaning. And the culprits actually broke in while she was upstairs and they broke in downstairs and they took a number of electronic items, laptops, playstations, things like that. So I suppose a word of caution to the listeners, you know, even if you are at home in your house, um, it's worth having the doors locked. It's worth having the alarm on because these lads literally will take chances and do everything to get in to to steal that property so quite Mm. brazen so again a word of caution just have the doors locked and have your alarms on even if you are in the house
3: Yeah, Indeed it's striking how many burglaries have uh, occurred over the Mm. week and we've another one to report on this happened on Wednesday in Dundalk
8: This one happened at Conlon's Food Hall there on the Avenue Road in Dundalk Um, 5am in the morning before the premises was open um, a suspect smashed the front window of the shop went in and made his way to the till now there was no very little in the till but he still managed to take whatever little bit was there. Um, again, five o'clock in the morning. People may have been on their way to work, and our colleagues in Dundalk are looking for information on that one.
3: Okay, that was on Wednesday. To Drogheda in uh, on Thursday rather. To Drogheda on Thursday, and another burglary. Then that happened.
8: This one is in Milano's there on the Tully Allen Road in Drogheda, Thursday, the seventh of April at four o'clock in the morning. Um, a vehicle actually drove into the front of the premises in order to gain access. Um, So again, that would have created a lot of noise, a lot of damage. So somebody must have heard that or must have seen that car and have some information that they might be able to pass on to our colleagues. Again, looking for the till, very little in the till, but a huge amount of damage caused, uh, you know, kind of a a very dramatic entry to that premises. And again, our colleagues in Drogheda would be keen to speak to anybody who has any information on that one.
3: Okay, they were obviously very determined. Uh, We go to Dunlear, where uh,
8: you're investigating a robbery. Yeah, this is um, at the centre there on the main street in Dunleir. And this one happened on Thursday, the 7th of April at five o'clock in the morning. So staff members were on the premises and taking in deliveries. Uh, Three men approached them, one with a blade and um, actually threatened them if they didn't hand over um, looking for the safe and looking for money that was held on the premises overnight um, so they actually threatened to use serious violence there on the staff members so a very very frightening um, incident there and they actually did actually manage to get away with some items from that from that um, property so again um, 5 o'clock in the morning in Dunleer, people may have been on their way to work and may have noticed a car or a van or something like that leaving that area again our colleagues in Dunlear will be uh, very keen to speak to you.
3: I'm sure. OK, and we're going to conclude with another robbery. Uh, this happened in Navan last Thursday.
8: Yeah, so this one happened at a nail salon on the market square in Navan last Thursday evening at 7.30. So obviously, um, They were closing up for the evening. Three men were seen watching this premises for a while before they actually closed up for the evening. Then when they closed up, they threatened them with knives looking for the takings. Now, in fairness to the staff members, they managed to get into their car and actually leave the scene without having to hand over any money. But one of the culprits actually pulled the driver's side wing mirror off the car as they drove off. Um, So that must have been extremely frightening to the staff there. But again, half seven on the Market Square in Navin, very, very busy area. If anyone has any information, these men were hanging outside that premises for a while before they closed up watching them. So somebody must have a description. And again, our colleagues in Navin will be keen to speak to you if you do. Okay.
3: Quite a lot there uh, this week. Thank you indeed uh, for all of that. Garda Tara McManus of uh, Dramad Garda Station and we'll return to the Garda Crime Desk next Tuesday. You may uh, wish uh, to keep in mind that if you have any information for the Garda that you can make contact on the confidential line which is 1800 six. Treble one, that's one eight hundred treble six treble one. Thanks to Margaret, who's been in touch with us uh, about energy prices. She says, while I'd welcome the reduction in the VAT rate to nine percent on electricity, I sincerely hope it's not going to go back up to 23%. I'd rather that it was left as it is at the current rate of 13% uh, instead of it going back up to 23%. Who'll take the blame if that happens? I don't know. It's a bit of a a bizarre one, all right, Margaret. Uh, The government had said that it couldn't do it without a derogation from uh, the European Union or else it would go back up to 23%. It it appears now that they've separate advice which says they can do it for a period of time that they can reduce it to 9% which is going to result in the savings of about 110 on most people's bills uh, and that's in addition uh, to uh, the scrapping of uh, the public service obligation and indeed the three weeks lump sum payment for people who are on the fuel allowance. Uh, Margaret in Dunleer in touch saying she's delighted to hear about that. Another €99 euro as a pensioner. It seems as though we're getting money hand over fist from the government. Uh, it seems to be one boost after another and I'm absolutely delighted and I'll be looking forward to getting my 100 euro uh, and I'm sure that it'll cover uh, my energy bills and then some. Thank you indeed for sharing that with us. That's our programme for today. God willing, we'll uh, see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye.
2: The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie.
5: For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early, so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts, so you can quickly and easily find what you need.